Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here's your co-host, John Skinner. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. This is a... It will be an interesting discussion. I'm glad... You're glad to be here for this one, too, because I was honestly not sure what you were kind of feeling about this episode or not, and I have mixed feelings about this, but also, I mean, generally positive, but man, this is going to be an interesting one to talk about. Uh, So... For those of you listening in for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. We are now at the end of our Messy Masterpieces series, a series that we've been doing where we've been going over films that might not be as well critically acclaimed or were just kind of overshadowed by other films in the director's catalog or actor's catalog and all that sort of stuff and I think this is also kind of a contested one that we could do because I think there's maybe two other films in Leone's filmography that we could kind of put into this and that maybe fit better but I think this is the most interesting of them because of the troubled post-production and history of this film and all of that so we are covering Once Upon a Time in America and we're not alone today we have brought on a guest with us the one and only Kyle Stuke. Hello. It is good to be here, friends. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm interested to hear y'all's thoughts on this film uh, because I might <laughs> I might be the, the the wet blanket of the group, but uh, oh, but again, I there there's a there's positives, um, but I don't really have a history with this film. Uh, when you gave me the list to choose from, I just was I I had basically seen everything, and I went, oh well. I've never seen, you know, Once Upon a Time in America, and I've always wanted to. Um, so let's do that one. And then as it got closer and closer to doing this episode, I was like, how long is this thing? And then I Googled <laughs> it, and I was like, oh, Kyle, you idiot. Why did you choose this? I was like, "Why? nothing should be longer than two and a half hours. So I was not going into it um, with a good attitude because life's crazy, life's busy. Uh and this movie is very long, but we are here. I'm happy to be with you two. Happy to be with uh, two fellow film fans. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm excited to hear what you guys think about this movie. I'll try to behave myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We we allow all sorts of behavior on this show. So Fantastic. don't hold back anything. Yeah. I feel like this movie would have been better to cover almost like at the beginning of the pandemic whenever everyone was like staying home and like i have time to sit down and watch Mm. a almost four hour long movie but now as you know stuff is kind of returning back to normal i feel like it's a bit harder to make time i definitely felt like it was hard for me to make time to watch this movie but before we get into all of that i'll get in with a brief summary of the film and i'm trying to make this as brief as possible it's very hard for this one you have to cover (laughs) 30 years in a four-hour movie. Okay. Yeah. A woman enters a dimly lit room and is met by gangsters who question her about the location of a man. She doesn't tell them anything and they shoot her. Those same men are seen torturing another man who caves in and says he is at a Chinese theater. 
Inside the theater, the gangster known as Noodles smokes opium, not knowing that men are coming after him until he gets tipped off by the staff. He rushes over to a bar and freezes the tortured man, killing his captor. He takes a key from his clock and heads to the train station. He opens a locker which has a suitcase that contains nothing but newspapers. Dismayed, he leaves for Buffalo. An aged version of him appears at the door he just walked through as a young man. We are now in the 60s, and he returns to the bar to regroup with his friend Fat Mo. The two catch up, and he roams about the place until he goes to the bathroom and looks through an old peephole he looked through as a young child. We are transported back to 1918 as a young girl dances in the back room of the restaurant while a young noodles watches. He is interrupted and leaves to meet up with his buddies to do a job. For payment, they try to steal a watch from a drunk but are intercepted by Max, the new kid in town, who takes it first. Noodles meets up with him and takes it back but is caught by a police officer who takes it from him. The two team up and decide to form their own gang. They pull small jobs but are beaten up by Bugsy, the local gangster, and threatened if they continue. Noodles and Max catch their local cop with a minor and blackmail him to look the other way when they do their jobs. They work for a big local bootlegger and score big when Noodles' idea for saving overboard liquor works. They put their money in a suitcase and keep it in a locker in a train station. On their way back, they're intercepted by Bugsy, who shoots Dominic. An enraged Noodles charges at him and repeatedly stabs him with a switchblade. Two police officers show up and Noodles stabs one of them. He is then arrested and the friends see him off to prison. Back in the 60s, the aged Noodles visits the mausoleum where Max, Cockeye, and Patsy are. He notices on the wall is a key to the locker in the train station. He unlocks it and finds the old suitcase in it, this time filled with cash and a note for him to do a new job. In 1930, Noodles is released and Max picks him up and brings them to their speakeasy. He is reunited with the old gang and is told they are doing very well as bootleggers. Max introduces the group to two Italian gangsters who tells them to intercept some diamonds up in Detroit. They break into the jewelry store and steal the diamonds. In the process, Noodles rapes the woman who was the informant on the diamond. They leave and proceed to hand off the diamonds to one of the gangsters, but kill him and take them back. Max tells Noodles that the other gangster had ordered a hit on his partner, which Noodles finds repugnant and asks what if he tells them to kill each other. In a continued streak of jobs, they provide protection for a local labor unionist. This turns into one of their main tasks as they face up against local police and other mobsters to protect the Teamsters. In a brothel they own, they recognize Carol, the informant on the diamond job, and she starts a relationship with Max. That night, Noodles takes Deborah out on a date. He rents out an entire restaurant and they're waited on at the beach when she tells him that she is going to L.A. and that they can't be together because he'd just lock her up. On the car ride home, she kisses him and then he assaults and rapes her. She leaves on the train the next day and closes the window as he looks out after her. The politician who hired the gang for the Teamsters advises them to invest in a business since prohibition will soon be over. Noodles says that he'd rather do street work and goes on vacation with Max. In Florida, it is announced that Prohibition is over and Max tells Noodles of his plan to rob the Federal Reserve. Noodles says he's crazy, which causes Max to blow up. When they get back to New York, Noodles and Carol look over the reserve and she convinces him to turn Max in so he won't get killed doing the job. They throw a last party at the speakeasy and Max tells Noodles that they're going to do one last bootlegging job. Noodles is reserved the whole night due to his guilt of betraying Max that night by calling the police chief. When Max confronts Noodles on the job, he says he's crazy and Max knocks him out. The job goes awry and all three of his friends are killed. In the 60s, Noodles visits Carol, who tells him that Max wanted to be killed and that's why he set him up. Noodles then visits a seemingly unaged Deborah and asks about the invitation to a party he received from Mr. Bailey, a rich politician who is her husband. He also discovers her son, who looks exactly like a young Max. 
Noodles goes to the party and is called up to Mr. Bailey's office, who turns out to be Max. Max tells him that his final job is to kill him, but Noodles refuses. Max elaborates on his plan in which he faked his death, married Deborah, and became a successful businessman and politician, thus taking Noodles' life from him. Noodles still doesn't want to kill him and leaves the party. He's followed by a garbage truck and sees that Max followed him and disappears behind the truck. When it passes by him, he sees the grinder in the back chewing up the recently thrown-in garbage. A ghostly cavalcade reminiscent of the Prohibition Party drives by in the other direction, and Noodles is left stumped. We are thrown back to the opium den in the 30s and see Noodles taking a deep drag from the pipe and staring off blissfully. So, my two words for this film, uh, we've been doing one positive and one negative word, and so my two words are unflinching emotion. And the negative is unflinching because, man, this movie does not hold back in any sense. And, I mean, one of Leone's trademarks is to just have incredibly long shots over very dramatic stretches. And that works really well for a big chunk of this, but it makes some scenes in this film very, very hard to watch. Emotion, too, because I definitely think this is by far Leone's most emotional film. It's... Weird watching it the second time, knowing the outcome of Noodle's character. But whenever you watch it the first time and there's just kind of like all of the emotion between Noodles and Deborah at the beginning and Noodles and Max and all of this sort of stuff. And it's honestly, I think, mostly because of Morricone's score that really packs that emotional punch for all of this. And it's just a facet that Leone hadn't really touched on before. There's bits and pieces of it throughout his work but nothing as emotional as this and so those are my two words to sum this up my two words are grand amiss because exactly what you said this this movie does the large we're talking about the length i actually love the length on paper right i I think it i love this type of indulgent like sweeping grand epic and that's what this is this is trying to be a masterpiece right and swinging for the fences and that that length and that huge swath of time that it's taking place over really combined with the music really does create this really this atmosphere of epicness you know to the story on the big picture this movie works really really well i'm fine with the runtime in some ways but the miss is when you get down into the character moments the characters kind of fall apart i think the music, a lot of the emotion is reliant on what is a very good score, and that works against what are some very horrible things that these characters are doing, and you're right. The second time you watch this movie, it's very hard to watch knowing that Noodles is who he is, and this sort of nostalgic like connection you have with Noodles as the main character is feels gross at times because he's so irredeemable. And this is a huge problem with any organized crime drama right is how do you portray the life of crime you have kind of the the godfather style where you you kind of romanticize it you know you sand off the rough edges of these characters and and it can kind of glorify violence too much because because you kind of don't see behind the scenes as much and uh you have the goodfellas which i think does a much better job it's still people have talked about especially Scorsese, like maybe struggling with glorifying violence. But I think Goodfellas does an amazing job of showing Ellie's consequences at the end of like what that life ultimately leads to. You're with the character, right? 
And that's the problem with this is that it kind of is in the middle and it fails in a way that those other two movies do not because you do see unflinching looks at violence against women and just horrible things. You know, even the, the baby trading scene is kind of played up as lighthearted and it's devast- It's what they did to people is so devastating and horrible. You're seeing horrible things that they're doing and the movie's so long, but by the end you're kind of like, I don't care. Like, I don't care, Noodles, that you don't have money. I don't care anymore. I, I, by the end, I almost feel like you, you wish you were with Max, who is still a flawed character, but feels more interesting, I think, by the end. So the length, like, mechanically works, but because the characters are so horrible to be with that I think by the end you, you're kind of, like, done with it because you've spent so much time with them, because the music is making you feel a certain way that you you know you're not supposed to, right? So when you zoom into the individual scenes, I think it just it doesn't work. The one thing I do want to say is, like, we're doing messy masterpieces. I think this sort of has the vibe of this big attempt to do something important, and it's undermined by a lack of execution. And I know that... Our theme has mostly been defending it against other people, but this one is critically loved, but it's kind of been forgotten. So I sort of think it's worth talking about, absolutely. But I think as we dive into it, there's some things that we need we need to talk about for sure. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. Um I, I forgot that one word had to be positive and uh it's all good, uh, but uh, I'm gonna make it work. I'm gonna make it work. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna act act quick like a uh, like a bootlegger does, you know, um, just to tie it all together. I guess my two words are I'm gonna say messy indulgence because uh, and indulgence in this case being both negative and positive um, because in the good sense, the indulgence, it's like, this movie's amazing in terms of just, like, all the money on screen. Like, I do miss being able to just see a huge group of real extras and just see a sweeping shot of a street, and you just know every single person on there has been given instructions of where to go and to have an action to perform and to have to do it for a while. And I, it always gets, I always get stressed out because I'm just like, dang, this must have taking a long time and I'm looking at all the extras trying to make sure they're all doing their job and just seeing if there's anyone who's messing up and uh, the sets too. You're just like, wow, look at all this money because of course it's, you know, supposed to communicate the lavish lifestyle that this group of friends are able to rise to during prohibition. So I don't think the, you know, the indulgence is, is all bad. I love seeing, someone get to just like play with a bunch of toys and really get across their vision. You know, even if I don't like it, I'm like, that's cool. Like this person just got to say, I want hundreds of extras walking around trading vegetables, talking about their day and dressed in old timey clothes. I love it. Um, But yeah, messy this movie. I mean, I think it, I think you guys put it in the right category uh, because this movie is all over the place. The whole time I was thinking of, the Irishman, because it felt very similar to me where I just was like, wow, okay, we're wanting to do this grand story that takes place over multiple generations and really follows a specific character and this moral 
decline, and then also this, you know, this emptiness that they're met with at the end. But I feel like both movies don't know how to do that. And thankfully, this movie does know how to um, communicate different timelines well through makeup, whereas I just was reminded of how terrible the Irishman, in my opinion, you know, the the digital de-aging that took place. This movie, I was like, oh, this is the way to do it. Like, get someone who's young and then get good makeup department who can make them look older or just get a brand new actor. And so this movie really works in terms of communicating the the, the different timelines, but in terms of what it wants to say about greed and like, and all the uh, like log lines and stuff, it's like, Oh, America. And it's about betrayal and greed and love. And I'm like, eh, all these people are cardboard people. I can't tell you a single thing. The most defining characteristic for some of the side characters is that they have a lazy eye. I was like, that guy's got a lazy eye. That guy smiles a lot. Question mark. Robert De Niro's Robert De Niro. Max is the other friend who's the other most main character, and then there's other people. So from a filmmaking standpoint, there's a lot to love about this movie in terms of how it looks, how it's directed, and there are some good moments. And Connor, you bring up a great thing about the score. I think the score goes hard. Like, you know, all those memes about, like, with the guy with the piano on fire, you know, like Phil Collins or Tarzan, or uh, I I can't think of any other examples off the top of my head. But this score... Yeah, is amazing. And I, if I was him, I'd be pissed watching the movie. I'd be like, what? I created this for this, these blank slates on the screen? Like, this is a magnum opus. But it does work really well, and I will be listening to it um, again in the future. So plenty to love, plenty to dive into. But yeah, kind of, kind of a hot mess, in my opinion. Interesting. Well, before we get into our, our full discussion, start off with a now in film history in the 60s, Sergio Leone, after making his Dollars trilogy and starting work on Once Upon a Time in the West, reads the book The Hoods and kind of has this overarching idea for a new trilogy that he's working on, which is the Once Upon a Time trilogy. So he reads this book, The Hoods, and is just captivated by it, absolutely loves it, and is like, this is a movie that I really want to make, but he's in the midst of doing Once Upon a Time in Amer- or Once Upon a Time in the West. And then his next film he does is Duck You Sucker. Then he just kind of takes a break after that. And I think there's different theories on whether or not he couldn't find funding for it, whether or not he just wanted to retire. But then at some point he revisits it again. And actually, I think is at maybe the Cannes Film Festival or some sort of film festival and bumps into Arnon Milchan, who we've talked about in the past. And Arnon Milchan's like, hey, do you want to make a movie? He's like, yes, I actually really want to make The Hoods. And he's like, great, I'll give you the money to go and do that. So he writes a script that's like basically all just like almost screen direction, not much dialogue, and gives it to this other writer. And he's like, okay, I've written all the actions and all of that sort of stuff. You write the words. And so the guy goes and writes all the the dialogue for it, brings it back to him, and Leone reads it like right in front of him, right when he gave it to him. And he's like laughing all throughout. And he's like, wow, this is really funny. I don't want my movie to be funny. Takes it back to him and they like, you know, end up redoing a lot of it. Goes through many different actors where the original Noodles was supposed to be Richard Dreyfus, the 30-year-old one. And then James Cagney was supposed to play the one in the 60s. They both drop out. There's a bunch of other actors that go in and out. But then Robert De Niro gets brought up with this. And 
they're like, okay, well, we can just age him up at the end. Same with James Woods, same with some of the other characters that are in there as well. And the production really went pretty smoothly. I mean, it's set in New York, but only the exteriors are shot in New York. Everything else is really shot in Rome. They have 10 hours of footage. He cuts it down to six, wants to release it as two three-hour films. Bertolucci's 1900 had just come out, which they had just split into two films, and it did horribly. So they're like, nope, you need to trim it down. So he trims it down to like four and a half hours. And like, nope, you need to trim it down even more than that. And so he trims it down to like three hours and 50 minutes. It premieres at Cannes, and people love it and go crazy. It gets like a 20-minute standing ovation. After that, for some reason, the American distributors are like, "Uh, this movie's not going to do well because it's too long. So they decide to go in, chop it up, bring it down to like two and a half hours and cut out all of like the whole kind of flashback sort of thing, reorganize it, show it chronologically, and it just absolutely bombs. People are like, this is a horrible movie. Like, why is this being shown around here? I can't believe this is Leone's passion project that he's been working on. And it's really interesting because Roger Ebert had seen the original version and was like, this is the best movie of the year. And then I think he saw the American version. He's like, this is the worst movie of the year. And they totally destroyed the film. And so it kind of gets like forgotten about for a bit. But then they start re-releasing the quote unquote European cut onto like home video. And it starts getting more and more of a cult following as people have been like, no, we saw the original in Europe and it was fantastic. So you need to revisit it. And so it kind of brings it back into the public light. Dang, that's a journey. Yeah. So I was not expecting this, but I think I'm really going to be the defender of this film throughout this. I remember watching this in college whenever I was just kind of doing my blaze through. I was like, I need to watch all of the classic movies. And I would watch like, you know, 10 in a week. John, it was whenever we were rooming together. So I think you even came in and watched part of it with me or the last half of it or something. I already, I had already watched it by that point. Okay. I'm I'm sure. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I remember like liking it, but I was like, I just love the Dollars trilogy so much. Like that's my favorite Leone. And I was like expecting more of that. And so I remember kind of being disappointed by it, but kind of liking, I mean, still liking it. Whenever I watched it, I was just like, hmm, I think this is a near perfect film. I think it is absolutely incredible. Just the amount of stuff that it's able to accomplish in those three and a half hours is astonishing that you can capture one man's life in its entirety and so many different decades and like you said Stuke, of it being so distinguishable in each time period that you without a doubt know where you are at any point in time is really fantastic and just the score is like pitch perfect i think all of the performances are incredible i kind uh I don't know if I think this is De Niro's best performance, but I think it is really high up there. And I absolutely love just the vision of it because this is the you know third part in his trilogy, which kind of gets messed up because the second one is called Duck You Sucker. But it was supposed to be like originally called Once Upon a Time in The Renegade or something like that. The Revolution. And the Revolution. That's right. Once Upon a Time in the Revolution. And then Bertolucci came out with a movie that had the revolution. And they're like, well, we can't confuse them with that. And so in Europe, it was called A Fistful of Dynamite. And then in America, it was called Duck You Sucker. Because Sergio Leone was like, oh, that's a common phrase in English. Everyone knows what that means. And, mm. and so mm. let's call it Duck You Sucker. Incredible. 
I feel like that name has kept it from like it's the more obscure one of his movies because of mm-hmm. that name. But yeah, it's really good. I really like it. So on paper, I want to defend this film, but I don't have the heart to do it. But I agree with everything you're saying. I'll say this. This is a, maybe a question we can all answer is what do we think of the framing, the frame story, the frame within a frame, you know, flashback, the way that those are stacked together? Do we like it or do we not like it? I think it's incredible. I think it's honestly the only way that this film works is because of that. I am mixed because I was thinking about that, knowing that the U.S. version put it chronologically. I was like, I feel like I might feel the journey a little bit better if it's uninterrupted from like youth to mid-age to to being old to where I might feel that better. But at the same time, I do think there is some magic caught in the framing being reflective. So it's like you're starting off kind of with, I mean, A, it's exciting. The movie starts off and you're like, oh, oh my God. Okay. (laughs) Just shooting people in the boob. All right. Um, And there's a mystery too. It's like there's, there's immediate violence and there's a mystery of what's going on. And then the film gets very reflective. And I think that, that question of like, what happened, who took the money, and, like, how did things go so bad is very important to the film. But at the same time, it does rob a little bit because you know that certain people are going to just disappear. And, you know, especially for the ending, like, the whole framing of, like, who took the money? Well, I I went, I immediately went, well, either it's some random person who they're going to introduce, like, in the last act, like a some of the modern superhero movies where it's like, and here's the CGI villain who has never encountered the hero before. And you're just like, I don't care. So it's like, either it's going to be that or probably one of the friends, you know, aren't dead. Maybe it's the burned guy (laughs) whose face is all messed up. And so when that happens, I was like, maybe that could have been more impactful if it was done differently. So again, you know, long winded way of saying mixed, I think it, I think there's pluses and minuses to both approaches. I don't think either one works a hundred percent well, but it didn't bother me necessarily with this film. I just, it did make me think about it. I think it works spectacularly well. It feels like you're unwrapping this relationship and it's the, the rape scene that threatens to ruin the entire film. And because it doesn't feel like a revealing of like, that's not the dramatic turn. The dramatic turn is the core relationship is Max and noodles. And to have this horrible thing happen right before that reveal kind of hits you like a thud. And then this unwrapping feels stupid and pointless at this point. Mechanically, I think it's one of the greatest uses of this type of filmmaking because you are journeying into that relationship. The first time I watched it, Deborah leaving that that is what kind of ruined noodles for me watching it again knowing that but but now it's like okay you kind of know earlier on they're irredeemably horrible people then it feels indulgent I mean it's it's clearly indulgent but like it then it feels like over the top and again it's this mix of like the music does not work with the characterization I think the performances are really good I feel weird having this beautiful music about nostalgia and it's like, mm, whatever. And each of these individual relationships makes sense. I can defend how people act, particularly the women characters. You can, you could 
do that if you wanted to, but then when you stack them all together, all the women are awful or are innocent and violence is committed against them. And so what ends up happening is it feels cartoonish when that kind of blunt crime drama characterization is supposed to be feel realistic, right? Goodfellas does a good job of showing how people react in, in horrible situations when people are doing horrible things. This does not. It feels weird and 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 I think so the the framing works well, but then when you discover what's in the middle, it's like I don't I feel tricked, you know, you feel a little tricked. I think the movie has to have it and I think it's essential to what the movie's trying to do. It's just I think I don't know. Okay, so I have two responses for that. One, the score. I th- the reason why I think the score works for two reasons. One, because this is all from Noodles' perspective. So this is like, you know, the score of like what it what it felt like to him at the time and all of that. And that's why I think it is so excellently executed in that. And I think it's so good too because it's sh- it's like beautiful but it's so sad too like deborah's theme is like heartbreaking listening to it like every time i hear like it comes on on the screen i just like want to cry it's like this deep longing for something that should be perfect or should work together but it has like this foreboding nature in it that it's like there's something inevitably wrong that is going to happen that stops it from being just this perfectly beautiful thing and i think that's something that is being built up throughout the entirety of it and it shows one his commitment to max and he chooses max over her every single time whenever it comes to a choice of the two of those and that that is like the one thing that finally separates it go noodles your mother is calling you yeah yeah that sort of thing or even like whenever they first meet again at the prohibition or at the speakeasy and she says like that same line again. It's the final like tear in the fabric. So that way he's like, okay, I'm fully committing to Max. But then there's also the portrayal that happens with that. And so overall, I think why this works so well is because I think this is um, maybe aside from Goodfellas, the most anti-mobster mobster film ever made. It just so perfectly shows just all that goes wrong with it, where Literally everything about noodles is torn apart to a point of irredeemability. And the psychological side of this film, just how you see the environment and the actions of others impact on noodles, because noodles throughout the majority of the film is such a passive character. He's either seen just like staring at things or just sitting and not doing anything. And so one kind of the danger and the gravitas of everything leads him to such passivity, but it also at any point where he's not passive, he's violent because those are the only two actions that this sort of lifestyle has taught him to do is either just like sit there and take it like whenever he's being beaten by Bugsy or be violent and that's how you get your way. Because with every single sexual interaction that he has in the film, it's violent. Every scene of that is shown as a crime. There's no love or passion or anything like that. All he knows is like violence or passivity. He sees everything as like a heist or like a job or something like that. And that's why I think the framing of him going back to him being old works so well is because you see the wear and tear. Yeah, quote unquote old. The wear and tear on him where even at the end, he's like in his 60s and he's like, ah, you know, my eyes don't work so good. Even whenever I have glasses on, my hands shake nonstop. And like, he's just like, wow, this is a really sad old man, like. 
it doesn't really make you forgive him or anything, but you're just like, wow, he's... And even whenever they're at their height, it's like you still don't really see it. They're just still doing jobs for other people the majority of the time. They're not the bosses. They're not the ones in charge. They're in charge of the bootlegging stuff. But even whenever they're like, you know, swimming in money, they just have like a briefcase full of money. They don't really have like connections. They're not the powerful ones. They're the ones Mm -hmm. being used. Mm -hmm. So even though he's devoted his whole life to this, he's still just kind of a crony. I I do want to say, I think we've got the spectrum of Robert De Niro, like bad makeup. We know what he looks like old now, so it's kind of weird seeing him aged up. This is like barely doing anything. And then you have the Irishman, which is way too much on the other direction of like aging him down. So it's like, that's the one thing I I do kind of have a hard time. It's like, oh, this is older now. He looks the same, you know, Deborah too. Like Mm -hmm. they try and do the makeup thing to be like, oh, she's wearing whatever, but they don't look like they've aged at all, which is fine. It's the only kind of technical thing I think is a misstep, but we have more tools now that that we can mess up with. They didn't try on Deborah at all. Like Deborah, they, didn't they, try, yeah. they made no effort. But Connor wants to say something, but that's how I feel. Uh, they just have her wear makeup and say you can't tell that she's wearing this and it makes her look young and we'll throw a line in there. But yeah, they don't. Do when she says she's like, it's been whatever years. I was like, years. Yeah. I was like, no, it has not. Unless someone's like, you know, found out about time travel, Missy. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, no way. So, okay. There is a theory with this film Ooh. that I 100% subscribe to is that basically nothing actually happens past the opium den. Oh yeah. And that everything else is a dream. An opium-induced dream. So he invents the Frisbee? I mean, I... (laughs) You don't dream about Frisbees, my man? (laughs) Not before they were invented. (laughs) 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 But I honestly... I mean, Leone has even said, like, as far as I'm concerned, nothing happens past 1930. Which is dumb. I... See, okay, but see, I actually think that's one of the things that's why this film works is because it is traveling back and forth between time. Because if you look at it in the other light, there's a lot of things with like the 60s that doesn't make sense. And I think that's very intentional to make it overall. I think this thing is just supposed to feel like a dream because whenever I was like trying to remember this, I was like, why don't I remember this movie? And I was like, oh, because it's made to feel like you're in like an opium dream where you're just shooting back and forth between stuff and everything there's always fog there's always smoke there's always some sort of haze going on in like every scene and all that like things work out too perfectly like i think it's him trying to justify him killing his friend killing max i was like oh he actually faked it and now he's a successful businessman that i've never heard of also apparently he married my love interest who is now is the most famous actress of all time and like there's all these sorts of things, and that's why, like, Deborah isn't aged up is because he's like, oh, well, I just remembered her young. She's just going to stay beautiful forever. And, like, even James Woods' acting just is weird whenever he's older. Like, his line delivery, everything, like, about that is so off from any of his, like, previous acting that he's done that I think there's something intentional to that that is, like, a man trying to get reconciliation out of something that doesn't actually exist. Well, don't get me wrong. I think it's dumb either way. Like, if it is literal, I don't like it. But then if it is an opium dream, I'm like, I don't want to watch 
a boring, like a boring opium dream. Like if it's a dream, let's get crazy. Let's throw in <laughs> the Inception stuff. Let's, you know, see the pink elephant. Let's not see like a somewhat realistic, but kind of a little too, because you're right. Like, especially when it was like, oh, you know, Max happens to be this politician that came out. I was like, what? Like, that was weird. And then, of course, yeah, her being uh, the love interest, like him having married her, I was like, okay. And then to the whole, you know, trash thing, I was like, if someone dr- jumps in a trash compactor, they're not, like, going silently into the night. Like, if, if he actually jumped in there, it would have been, you would have heard sploosh, and then, oh, my God, oh, my God, ah, this was a terrible idea. Uh, I'm dead, you know? like <laughs> There's no blood on the lettuce. Yeah, so I never bought that. Yeah. When I first watched this movie... I liked it more, and so I kind of hated the the opium dem theory. I thought it was weird and dumb, but you've convinced me now because my the thing that just I hate so much is seeing old you know he's sad as an old man, but seeing him not get some redemption but just kind of he gets to talk to Deborah and she's fine being alone in a room with him, like why would she do that? you know mm-hmm. it makes no yeah. sense. you've convinced me, Creed, because thinking of it that way. It's all his fantasy, right? It's it's what he wishes. Mm-hmm. He wishes there's this convoluted thing that could happen where Max is asking him for forgiveness, right? It's this power trip of I'm going to be dignified and, and do the right thing and, and not kill him when I get the chance. And if he screwed up his life, it's his fault, you know? It's 1968. The idea that the national story would be the Secretary of Commerce being <laughs> during an election year that the secretary of commerce is corrupt is just, and it's totally unrelated to the w- way the world was in 1968. You've sold me on it. I know he said it's a possible, but that's my interpretation. Now I've switched. I'm now more comfortable with it. Cause that was the thing that felt really weird this time. Cause her actions don't make any sense in yeah. the context of the entirety of their relationship. Why is she so calm? Why does she not have another person in the room? Why does she dismiss her? Why didn't she tell him to get dress the dresser? Yeah, yeah, seriously. Like, there's so many things that goes on with it. Why does her son look at literally played by the exact same person who plays young Max, mm-hmm. you know? And like, oh, yeah, I guess I lived a sad life, but I was I was still okay in the end, you know? It's not her son, and I don't think they're married. I think she's just dating him or she's, you know, he's providing for her and, and paying for her career or whatever. His wife died in childbirth, they said. But I think she was making that up, though. Because he says, like, is that your boy? And she says, yes. That's why she says, don't go through there. All you have left is dreams. Oh, if you go out there, you won't I never even caught have that. Those. Okay. And also, like, why would she be with Max? Because she's always hated Max. Yeah. Listen, this is fascinating to me because it's incredible to me that, like, I mean, that's the power of film. It's the power of storytelling that we can have such different <laughs> opinions on it. Like, when you were talking about Noodle's journey, which, first off, hilarious name for a gangster i love it i know i'm like is this uh i mean he's jewish but i was like it felt like an italian stereotype like oh we got the noodles we got noodles we got pasta over there and they're you know (laughs) incredible during your summary you said aged noodles and i almost burst out laughing (laughs) (laughs) yes aged noodles I forgot that his name was Noodles and in, in like doing reading for this before I'd rewatch it. I was like, 
that's his name is noodles like, is that what they call him the entirety of the movie and they do yeah and then they it looks even more ridiculous when it's engraved on the memorial but uh and it's put in quotes too which makes it really funny um but yeah it, it's just really interesting to me that uh like again i'm happy that this film worked for you like that's the thing that's funny to me is whenever i disagree with people on on film like i'm never angry because i i don't want someone to waste their time watching a movie that they don't like so if if i come out of transformers not happy and someone else is like that was awesome i'm like cool i'm glad you had a good time i think it's trash but like if it entertained you it accomplished its goal for someone and that's awesome so i'm glad that you know this emotional journey works for you it just was funny because i think my biggest things coming out of this is it gave me a de niro crisis because I went, is has De Niro ever really been that good? And I started thinking about all his oh, movies, gosh. and I and I, it kind of came to a Ryan Gosling thing where I was like, I think he just does the same thing, and some people like it. But I was thinking about Taxi Driver. I was thinking about I think Goodfellas is probably for me his best performance in terms of like this is a separate character. But this film, I just found him incredibly boring. Um, and then, again, in terms of the, the character of Noodles, I found him, since he was a kid, to just suck. Like, I out loud just was like, this kid sucks. I was like, is this going to be our our main character? Like, from the beginning, he's a creep. Um, and he just is awkwardly quiet. He doesn't reveal, there's no discernible details minus like he likes to read in a toilet sometimes. Again, like he goes to prison, he disappears for a while, comes back and then he's just like, yeah, I'm going to rape someone during a robbery. And then I'm going to like be kind of smug about it too. Like when he sees her later and he's like, it was me that raped you. That scene was so, I was just like, whoa, that was crazy. You're, you're awful. So I think, it's a big, this is a big conversation in film and in storytelling. And I understand that like characters don't have to be good people. And I'm not for, you know, films having redemption all the time. And I'm not for like having vanilla storytelling. The world we live in is awful. And so people are awful. But I think it's hard because I think Noodles for me was such a, a, a bland character to I truly didn't know what he wanted. I didn't know his personality traits. I didn't. And, and the whole love story too is like, I guess he likes her because he's, because she's pretty and he's horny. Like what makes her, what makes Deborah more appealing than any other woman? Why mm-hmm. is he going out? Like I'd never bought a love story there. And I think that's, what's hard with her character too is like, when they first interact, she reacted the way I expected her to. She's like, you're a creep. And then it was kind of that whole like, oh, then mm-hmm. I'm going to be mean to you because I don't like you thing like that he did. But then when she sees him again, she's like, yeah, come on in here and I'll read you the Bible. Cut to the future. And she's like on their dinner date or whatever. She's like, yeah, you're one of the only people I care about. And I was like, what the hell? Where is that coming from? Why? He's never done anything for you except look at you through a bathroom. Again, maybe off screen, but in terms of what the film tells us, that was the biggest failing for me. I just didn't understand the context for, like even the whole Max thing. We meet him. They have their meet cute, their gangster meet cute, which I did enjoy. I liked that scene a lot. 
But then it cuts to to um, noodles, aged noodles slash young noodles, raw noodles, if you will, um, going to meet Deborah. And then you have that scene of her saying, "Oh, your mother's calling you." And I was like, "They just met, though. He's already like calling him to go do jobs." I did like the callback later when she says that, but it just, I don't know. I felt like the film, and I think, I mean, it is missing stuff because we were not watching the the six-hour version, so maybe this film would have worked better for me. Dear God, I pray for the version of Kyle in an alternate dimension who watched the six-hour version. It was bad. He didn't <laughs> like it because then he's going to be more cranky than I am. But um, all that to say. That's the dimension where James Wood is president, though. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, that is a dark world. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'll have to say, like, I just find it really interesting that, you know, we're, we're we're both able to watch this movie and have such different feelings. I'm just like, man, art is crazy. Art's neat. Uh, because everything you were saying, I was like, I disagree. But I'm so happy that it worked for you, Connor, and kind of worked for you, John. It seems like maybe you're in the middle between Connor and me. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying to feel you out. I agree with you, Creed, that it does a good job of doing everything to have you with him in his head. I just want to get out, you know, at some point. (laughs) I want to get off the ride. And I agree with you, Kyle, that I think maybe in an extended edition, there's a sense that Deborah loves him and sees something in him. And uh, he loves her because not just that she's pretty, but that she kind of represents his innocence. We just don't see that innocence, right? And we don't see it at the beginning to establish that he has good in him. And so a lot of the stuff later, it's supposed to be tragic, right? There's supposed to be a sense of he lost something and we don't see him have that thing that he lost. And I think, yeah, that's one of the problems that this has is that it's a little bit over-reliant on the score and then sort of just you loving the hijinks, you know, the, the early crime stuff supposed to be like all these kids and truthfully, they're already kind of scummy. So it's sort of, I think a lot of what you think of his character comes down to, do you like, is he likable at the beginning? I don't think he is likable enough. So I agree with kind of both of you. And the question is, in that opium dem interpretation, are you, am I okay with this being about this man losing himself? And is that a satisfying arc where he's just a villain, basically, and then he smokes a lot of opium and dreams the future? I think that's more satisfying, mm. but I, I agree. I don't think there's much of an arc. They're just kind of consistently terrible. I think Max is more likable of the two, right? I think mm-hmm. he's more of the archetypal... He's awful still. He's awful, but he's more of the archetypal like gangster movie guy that you kind of like, even though he's a jerk, you know? It kind of feels like because you don't see him as much, so it's the, the, the bouts of violence are just normal instead of just sitting with noodles and being like, man, dude... You suck. Like, you're a terrible person. By the end, I'm sort of, like I said, wanting to get off the ride. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like a movie where they're like, okay, what if we made an entire gangster film about the gangster sidekick? You know, because he's definitely not the main Mm -hmm, character. Like, mm -hmm. Max is the one who's in charge. Like, everyone else is doing so much more than Noodles is. He's just kind of getting pushed around and all that sort of thing. And it's like, what if you go through the life of someone who viewed themselves as a hero even though they were like a villain the entire time because he is like everything he does is bad even from the start you know like like you said he's spying on her then they go and burn down a guy's newsstand Mm -hmm. they're awful like right away they're awful and 
the whole thing is just incredibly tragic because there's so many moments where it's like, oh, this is how they could get out. Or these are the pieces of innocence. Or like whenever Patsy is like bringing the Charlotte Russe to Peggy. Uh, It's like, okay, this is great. Like good exchange. And then he like looks at it and he starts eating. And then he's like, you know, I'm just going to eat this cake instead of giving it to her and having sex and that sort of thing. And so I think there's like some really like joyous like moments in that where it's like, oh, the more innocent side takes over and triumphs a little bit but overall it's still they all fall into that and there are like so many moments where like deborah's like i'm leaving for la and i'm like good go with her get out of there don't be a criminal anymore you know try to do something else but it's like obviously not the life that he wants like even whenever they're like oh you should get into business because prohibition is about to end he's like nope i don't want to do that i i just like the stink of the streets and it's like dude get out man like Which, I mean, I have sympathy for, because if that's the only thing you've ever known, and if that's what's comfortable for you, and if that's what your life is, then of course you're not just going to completely uproot that. I I think it works. I think there's a sense that he's just a dumb street kid, right? That's the whole Deborah versus Max thing, is like, who is he going to be? It's just, it's never believable that he would choose innocence. And he's able to play act as a romantic at that dinner, and she loves him. And that's about all we see of him being a normal guy. So this whole, like, can he go legit tension that always exists in this type of story doesn't quite come to the place where you really feel the loss of those opportunities because it's at no point do we think he had he could have had this other life. He could have done this other thing. There's no choice for him, right? Maybe that's the point, but they're just such jerks from the beginning that it's just... It doesn't fit the mood the music is selling. Again, no criticism of the music. It writes a check that the story doesn't cash. Yeah. This is what I love, though, about film is that it's like there's so many tasty bits to the movie that make me go like, I, I'm not going to, I don't, I have no desire to try to remake this. And uh, <laughs> it's very pretentious for me to even think that's a possibility. But I do like it is inspiring in the sense that I'm like, I do want a story similar to this. I do want to watch like a group of friends who grow up on the streets and to watch their rise and fall. Like that is so appealing to me. And I do think the film's touching on interesting things. I mean, you both are bringing up how it's like noodles never really had a choice. And that's something I'm able to infer I just I have no I have no idea the context of his parents where they are mm-hmm. what happened to them and then like how he got involved doing jobs like him and how him and his friends met like I I know that sometimes some directors and writers are like ugh it's better to like come in a little bit late slash like leave some mystery and I totally agree but I still think like oh it would have been really fun to see how these kids meet each other and then. What's the first job that they do together? How does it go wrong? Because they're pretty comfortable. They're just like right off the bat. They're like, let's set. Like, we know how to set newspaper stands on fire. Also, at first, I thought they were peeing on the... That's kind of the joke, and it's like... "Eh, (laughs) Okay. mm, mm." (laughs) But, yeah. That's not going to light on fire. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, yeah, I I, I like the movie. We're getting up above seven hours in our our headcanon cut, I think. Yeah. We're, we're, we're shoot, shooting for eight. <laughs> Let's talk about this, though. I do think there's some stuff missing, and then there's some weird choices. I come not to bury this movie's visual style, but to fake its death for 30 years. But there's moments that are like, why did they do that? The Frisbee scene is the number one. What is going on? What is that about? 
Why is someone throwing a frisbee under a highway overpass in the middle of the night? Dr drives me crazy. Sergio Leone typically doesn't make those types of mistakes. Okay, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but like when he goes in the mausoleum, he like looks up a lot and he's looking at the corners. I guess he's looking for a key or something. But it's just a long shot of him looking around and establishing. Before you get any establishment of the geography of the interior, you get the sense of what the roof looks like, which is weird. And then he closes the door, and then he opens the door, and then he closes the door. And it's like, what is going on? Why isn't this cut down? I don't understand that scene. There's stuff that could be cut out. That is the one scene that does bother me. Because I, I feel like it's really... And it goes back and forth between the music cues a lot. Because the first reveal, when he closes the door... It's like setting him back because if you see the um, on the door, it's like the woman who's like kind of like outstretched like that. And like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what almost looks like bullet marks around her, like calling back to his girlfriend at the beginning where there's like, you know, the bullet hole outline of him on the bed and she dies next to that. So I think when, when you open it again, that's the reveal of like the tombs of Patsy, Cockeye and Max. And then he closes it again. And I think that's just kind of the impetus for him to find the key. I do agree with you that that's the one scene that does bother me a bit. The Frisbee thing, I've heard that there was like this whole, I mean, scene that was cut of them basically playing something like Frisbee in the streets when they were kids. Hmm. It is weird that it's kind of in there. How do you then do the transition? Yeah, he's in like, like the... How you shot it. He's in like the Bronx equivalent of Lower Wacker, walking around. It's shady. I don't know where he's trying to go, but he's trying to. He's got this money, and it's all tense. And then frisbee, and then not, we don't deal with it again. And it's like, it makes me laugh because it's just like unexpected nonsense, and it's so strange. It cuts to Max like grabbing the suitcase out of his hand. So for like a second, you think it's someone taking it from him, and and he's like, "Oh, can I get that for you, sir?" So I think that's what's the the transition is supposed to be sure it just doesn't make a lick of sense internally yeah. i guess part of it too is like it makes the the dreams part the dream sequence idea less logical because again like i said how did he know about frisbees <laughs> so kyle i want to ask you then so what are the things that you liked about this movie it doesn't have to be the characters it could be like set pieces it could be i mean the score it could be the feel, the cinematography, whatever. Like, what was kind of the appealing thing to you mm. in the midst of all this? Well, as someone who frequents opium dems, I just really felt like they did a good job <laughs> representing what it's like. You know, big fan of the puppet shows or the shadow, the shadow puppet shows. Um, big fan of the opium. Uh, I mean, that's why you're there. Um, community. Yeah. Uh, good yeah, you get it. Uh, I mean, we've gone together, yeah. so. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean like. There's lots of scenes in the film that work. Like, again, you mentioned the one with the, the kid going to, to deliver uh, the cake uh, in, as payment for sex, which I, I think is like a, I mean, it sounds bad, but it's like it's a charming detail in the sense that it's like, it's interesting and it makes the world feel unique. Like in this apartment complex, there is a mother and daughter and the daughter you know, is very, you know, confident in her sexuality and, and uses it to her advantage. Like, you know, she likes to make money and she doesn't really mind. She does it with the police chief. She does it with all these kids. She kind of views it as cute, kind of like that's an interesting detail. And so it really brings you into the world of like, this is kind of a dirty, kind of sad, gross place, but with like people who are just, again, it's, it's their world. So I like 
I forget the name of Deborah's brother, but I thought that the the actor who plays the the you know the adult version of him was was very good, even though it's like he talks about like oh I believed in you noodles or whatever, and I was like noodles raped your sister, so I guess you don't know about that. But noodles is a piece of crap. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Till she didn't tell him. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, because he like doesn't sell him out after that. What the heck? Dude, I don't like that guy anymore. Anyway, (laughs) I think that scene with the cake is actually very representative of what works and what doesn't work about this because in some ways it's like people are like this. You know, there's there's a sense that there's a, a weird brokenness to that world that they're living in, but then you still feel weird thinking he's cute, right? There's something slimy about like the marshmallow problem, but with like, underage sex and it, you're living in this world you're getting really close to the 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 lives of these people and you're kind of like mm, a little repulsed right but it's played up as this really cute thing which i mean it's it is hilarious, kind of hilarious but it, you feel bad that it, it's like it's also like oh yeah they're still kids yeah it's like dark cohen comedy to me uh what's her the girl's name peggy there peggy i mean she's being taken advantage of too i mean she's uh, with the police officer like it's it's there's a sadness to it that doesn't always come out in the the way that it's treated that it's like okay you know this is a tragedy what's going on right but that's crime dramas for you right that's just that's running the mill it's just that this maybe is a little showing things that you don't see in other movies and so it's like oh yeah i don't like that it's a movie that makes you mad when it works sometimes i think yeah but i think it also with Leone, it just has great set pieces, too. Like, I think there's so many well-executed scenes. Like, whenever they're handing off the diamonds, that scene, I mean, it's gory, but it's incredible. Just kid stuff. And then leans in, shoots him, drops to the ground. They just, like, wheel around. And then De Niro's chase of the other guy into, like, the the pillow-making factory or whatever pillow it is factory? or something like that. Yeah, factory? I don't know what yeah, it is. That is. But it's cool, whatever that is. Like, that's a great chase scene. It's an early example of automation because there's nobody in the building, but it's Mm. running on a weekend, presumably. Mm. I think it's the most visually beautiful crime, organized crime, like mafia movie ever made, like Mm. in terms of the set pieces. Godfather's beautiful, but this this is the shot of the Washington Bridge, you know, or the, the Manhattan Bridge at the end of the street. Like, it's just, you get such a sense of the what it's like to live in that world and it's it's beautiful i think that is by far the best part that and the music is the best part of the movie that completely succeeds yeah i don't get too Mm -hmm. like uh analytical in terms of like oh what do things mean or what are the metaphors but the one thing that i did find myself thinking about was those those beautiful wide shots uh again the bridge i think is amazing and like warrants the existence of the of the movie itself because that shot of the kids just i think like that shot is the like is the pitch Mm -hmm. basically and it's beautiful but Mm -hmm. there's so many shots of just like them being dominated by these huge buildings it's like they're tiny and it's like new york is huge and it's kind of the idea that like this place during this time and again it's a uh, once upon a time in America, it's like in this very specific piece of time, here are these people and here's how this country destroys them, basically how it sets them up for failure. Like you mentioned the diamond scene, Connor, and I love like 
that location because there's just that giant boat in the background. And I was like, dang, that's like beautiful, but it also feels like post-apocalyptic. Like, again, a part of America is dying. Then again, in contrast to the the feather pillow factory or whatever, there's so many shots where it almost feels ethereal it feels you're just like whoa like what is this this vision of america that's just like chewing these kids up and then spitting them out as as corpses and it's kind of like who it's that like um that song you'll never leave harlan alive uh it's kind of like that but with new york city i forget what the Mm -hmm. title of that song is it might be that or might just be harlan yeah it's just idea that's like people are born here they and they die here there's never an opportunity and again i wish that that was something more too is like them being Jewish gangsters that never really, as far as I was able to discern, because I admitted to Connor before you hopped on, John, that I fell asleep a couple times. Um, I, I don't feel like they that ever really played a factor, and I feel like that's kind of something different than, than other films is to to lean into to that aspect of it. But they do say lachaim whenever they drink, though. That's true. <laughs> it kind of happens off screen, yeah. When he's in jail, the shot when he goes to jail of the buildings across the street is overwhelming Mm -hmm. it's just the four-story or whatever building with the capped off tunnels or whatever they are on that building it's just yeah it's just you get the sense of this dying and growing country that's just like you said destroying these kids and it's just that they're sort of i don't say irredeemable at the beginning but like you already they don't establish the likability enough for me uh at the Mm -hmm. beginning but maybe that's a, a small complaint it's funny Kyle, that you said that this reminds you of the Irishman, because honestly, what this makes me think of is Gangs of New York. Like, I think I can see that, that mm-hmm. Gangs of New York is like Scorsese's Once Upon a Time in America, where it's something that he brewed over for such a long time, you know, read a book a while back and then like took kind of the core element and made a movie out of it. And that one is so like lovingly crafted, more so in the setting than in the characters as well, where there is kind of like a bit more like one dimensionality in the characters in that film than as opposed to some of his other films. But it's like so much based on world building, which is like what I feel like this film is too. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. Quick side note. uh, You know, we've been talking about the despicableness and stuff. Have you guys heard of the term grimdark? Mm -mm. Yeah. Uh, John has. uh, Okay. Basically, Connor and John, please, you know, jump in uh, if I fail. But it's a particular type of subgenre with fantasy. And basically, it's just the idea that, like, everything's gross. No one's redeemable. People use it to define Game of Thrones. But I also don't think that's accurate because in Game of Thrones, I'm like, oh, there's there's protagonists. And there's, like, the good guy who is consistently good. Whereas I think for something by definition to be grim dark, which, again, was just put together by the two descriptors um it's just like everything's bad and terrible and so i feel like the the reason i bring that up is because i was going to ask you connor i was like if you were to pitch this movie to someone to watch i'm curious how you would sell it and two we were mentioning some of the uh you know disturbing aspects of this film and so how how to you would um warn people or, or caution them because again i feel like grimdark if someone knows the term it's a great descriptor for this film even though it's not fantasy but it does capture the sense of like hey if you understand this genre you know what you're getting into when you watch the film you're basically accepting i just want to see a slice of life that is a little bit 
nihilistic and dirty and gross. And it's kind of like you, what you said, John, is you want to get a little, you want to get up close to it, but then you want to leave. And I think that's the power of cinema is that mm-hmm. it's like, this is a very different mm-hmm. world than I assume. I don't know your guys's full backgrounds, but this is a very different world than, than from my upbringing and, and what I'm involved in minus the opium dens as we've previously, uh, previously right. mentioned, but yeah, Connor, how would you like, who who would you recommend this movie to, and then how would you you how would you go about selling it to them? I'm curious. I mean, it's definitely not a film I'd recommend for everyone. Even like when we were talking, we we're saying like, yeah, Claire would not like this movie. <laughs> I think there would be stuff that she'd appreciate it. I mean, it is just brutal towards women and people in general. Mm-hmm. In particular, women. In particular, like it, it women. Is, there is a difference in how women get treated and exist. I'd say yeah, three brutal like rape assault scenes in it yeah i just kind of when i describe it i was, i'm just like there's never going to be another film like this there like there's something to it with the scope and the passion behind it that's something that was a book that was kind of popular based on a guy's memoir who was a gang who grew up as a gangster and then made something of this scope it's just not going to happen anymore and partially because i think you know the gangster genre is kind of dead nowadays there's stuff like uh live by night with ben affleck but that movie's horrible you know or or gaudy and like with each of those movies it's like oh yeah you got to watch it because they're so bad you know and that's like the whole thing i like how you decided to not say that gaudy is terrible too because it is But, like, the last thing I kind of see in this vein that was, like, just one of the classic mobster... Well, I guess there's two, is uh, Road to Perdition and Public Enemies are kind of, like, the two last grandiose mobster films. I mean, which is kind of sad because it was, like, one of the original genres in Hollywood and was, like, a huge staple for, like, film noir and all that sort of stuff. But I use the term there will never be a film, another film like this in a good and a bad sense. It's incredible in that you watch this and you're like, wow, this is like just a spectacle to behold. And it doesn't try to be flashy. Like it uses the cinematography to be pretty gross at points and it uses it to be gorgeous at points and uses it as a character. I mean, it just so perfectly fits in with like Coppola's films or like the French connection or just like, even though it's like, quote-unquote small stories just big films but i also think there's never going to be another film like this too in the way that it depicts like rape or it depicts like some violence or kids doing things or underage sex or that sort of stuff especially because he's an italian director and didn't have like the mpaa down on his back like throughout the majority of this he was allowed to get away with a lot more stuff than he would have if he was shot in the states the fact that there is a very extended rape scene I kept on being like, when is this going to end? It is such a long scene. It is horrific and awful. And there's a brutality about this that just really isn't in film anymore that you see in like other films of this time. I feel like especially in the 80s, just like rape culture gets treated so lightly and comedically in a lot of 80s films. But this one is just very graphic in it. This was his last movie. And if anyone tried to make this movie again, it would be their last movie too. I'm not going to go around telling people they have to watch it unless they tell me they're a huge Sergio Leone fan. I'd be like, it's interesting to watch this. Um, We haven't really gotten into it, but I think it tells us a lot about him as a filmmaker. And I I think it tells us some of the things he does in Westerns that do and do not work 
in this genre. So we talked about the big wide shots. I think that it's amazing how how he's able to adapt that from vistas of the West to the Bronx or to Manhattan or whatever, uh, an urban place. But I do think some of his filmmaking is used to having characters that either are completely unknown, like the Dollars trilogy, right? And then you sort of get bits and pieces of who they are along the way based on their actions, and it's mixed. But you don't. there's a mystery to them, right? Or you're doing that and revealing, you know, once upon a time in the West, by the end you get what the character's motivation is. And that works in the Western, and what he's doing works. And even if you're showing a horrible person, I think it kind of works, right? Because there's a distance there. The intimacy of a crime drama, that kind of unveiling doesn't work. The unveiling is instead of, of a relationship, instead of who someone is, you know who he is the whole movie, right? That's where I think it's sort of him doing the same thing again, and it doesn't quite work with this type of movie where you're living life with them from the very beginning. There's no narrator, but there might as well be, you know, in terms of how close we are to him the whole way. It's just interesting to see someone like him change gears at the last minute so much and uh, what he can and can't do with his range. I think he's more successful than you would have guessed based on his other movies, but the liabilities in a lot of ways come from what he's done in his career, how, how he tells stories. Mm, the the uh, the narration thing, this is dumb, but it just made me think of like, we should make a cut of this film where we get like a De Niro impersonator or something. And it just, it, it starts off with him in the, uh, the opium den. And it's like, you're probably wondering how I got here. And it's like, let's go back. <laughs> and it's like the super stupid, like, you know, re- rewind and stuff. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I walked into Grand Central Station and the Beatles just started playing all of yeah. a sudden. <laughs> and then I for, oh, I forget yeah. what uh what my second thought was because it got erased by my my dumb joke. So now I'm uh, regretting that that's uh the direction I I chose to take it. But <laughs> I will say, when do you think the next time will be that a film will premiere at Cannes, get a 20 minute standing ovation, and have the line "I'm gonna poop in my pants" in it? <laughs> when is that gonna happen again? Great Let's point. make it happen. <laughs> Let's make a vow to, to to us three. Get a locker <laughs> together, and we are gonna share finances, and we'll all put it in there to make a film where it has that line, and it can premiere. It can. Whenever one person goes to check on it, it's actually going to be full of newspapers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so one of us is going to betray the others. That's right. <laughs> I was going through, it has nothing to do with it, you can cut this out, but I was going through my notes, my notes app, which is very, it's where I just dump stuff, and I was going through my old notes, and one of them was just titled Movie Ideas, and the only thing in this note was, (laughs) The Godfather dubbed over with terrible Italian accents. Yes. (laughs) I would watch it. Was that your one film idea? (laughs) I didn't ever add a second idea to these silly ideas. <laughs> I got one idea, guys, but it's gold. We don't need any more. <laughs> That's what this, grote- this grotesque evil characters need is, is silly voices. That will fix all the problems <laughs> right. this movie has. Yeah. The thing I remembered uh, that I was going to say is um, in regards to just him as director, it is impressive to me that this movie is as coherent as it is and like 
done as well with like no one speaking English, like with everyone speaking different languages. Like that always impresses me when I think about like the Italian directors and just how they would bring in so many different people from so many different countries. You have different people on set and they're all speaking different languages and it just, for it to be coherent, like there's films like, uh, I've talked about this a lot on, uh, one of my horror shows, but, uh, it's like, there's films like Suspiria and, and stuff, you know, some of the Giallo stuff where you, you can tell you're just like, no one here is speaking the same language, <laughs> like either because stuff is dubbed poorly or just because of the performances where you're like, that person has no idea what's going on. Uh, but this film, it's like the fact that, you know, you have an Italian director who's not speaking English and who is able to, through his team and all this collaboration, tell a coherent story um, and have actors, you know, understand the direction and stuff is pretty amazing to me. Like as much as I don't love this movie, if there was a substantial behind the scenes, which maybe there is, I don't own the Blu-ray or whatever, but if there was like a, a nice documentary about the making of this film, I would be all over that crap. I would, would love to know how this film was made. So are you more of a heart of darkness fan than apocalypse now? Oh yeah. I mean, it's funny because as a, we talked about this before we started recording, but Funk, of course, my roommate, Daniel Funk, who you've had on the show here before, he he comes in, of course, during the assault scenes. And I'm just like, this is so uncomfortable. <laughs> I, this is like, I, I'm not enjoying, I feel like you have to defend. You're like, I just so you know, I don't enjoy this. But uh, we watched Apocalypse Now together and uh, we we both were just like, yeah, this is one of those those classics that does not work for us. But the the behind the scenes, of course, is incredible um so i am one of those guys i'm sorry i know you nice. like that movie i apologize and i will hand you my film card when i receive it in the mail someday <laughs> this is the most meta meltdown of all time yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> okay well should we wrap it up with a trivia challenge then heck yeah let's do it all right so Leone was not anticipating this film to be his last. He had another passion project that he had in mind that he was going to make afterwards. It was a World War II film. So which World War II battle was Leone going to make a film about next? A, Normandy, B, Leningrad, C, Crete, or D, Anzio? I'm going to say Anzio because it sounds the most Italian. I'm going to say Normandy. Those are both incorrect. It is actually Leningrad. Oh, okay. I suck. That's, yeah, yeah. It was. Was it? What was the movie? Was it Once Upon a Time in the War or something like that? Wasn't was one of the ideas? I I don't know if I'm making that up, but did I've he ever have a title? That. I'm not sure. It could be. I didn't hear about a title. I think it was just called The Siege of Leningrad or something. No, like it was it was Saving Private Noodle, and it was a continuation of this. Um, I wish that you would do your research, Connor, but that's fine. Kind of embarrassing for you, but that's fine. You know. Uh I thought the other temp title was Duck You Nazi. <laughs> That's better. That's so much better. I love it. That's what happens in that 30-year gap is he goes to war, and then he comes back, and <laughs> yeah. he does the entire plot of The Irishman. The Notebook? Oh. Yeah. And yeah, it's like a, and then, yeah, there's Vietnam, and then it's like Jacob's Ladder. It's just all these different layers. <laughs> you have no idea like whether he is awake or not. And then it turns out to be Forrest Gump. Yeah, it's just really not yeah. fair for us to criticize De Niro for playing the same character because little do we know they're all the same character. It's all That's one true. timeline. Yeah, De Niro, exactly. I know you're listening, and I apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, question number two: Which scene was cut in the American release of the film? 
A. Noodles meeting older Deborah. B. Max's garbage truck death. C. Max and Noodles blackmailing the cop when they were young. Or D. All of the above. D. I give you the D. That is correct. Yeah, so... Yes! In the other version, Max's death wasn't the garbage truck. It was whenever Noodles was leaving the party, He, whenever he kind of like looks back, he hears a gunshot, and that's it. Okay. See, yeah. again, that like... That makes so much more sense of like, I'm going to hire you to assassinate me because for some reason I can't kill myself, which I know it's about like, I'll let you have this redemption. But just mm-hmm. if you want to die, if you don't want to get assassinated, like you can, you can take care of that in an easier way than garbage disposal, but getting put in the dump. Yeah. Okay. Question number three, which director did Leone originally envision for directing this film? A John Milius. B, Francis Ford Coppola, C, Martin Scorsese, or D, Bernardo Bertolucci? Bernardo. Yeah, same. It's incorrect. It was actually John Milius, but he turned it down because he was doing Lion in the Desert and prepping for Apocalypse Now. He was doing this and turned down The Godfather. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Leone turned down the Godfather to maybe I shouldn't to say that film. maybe that's maybe that's one of the questions okay we'll it see. is not okay good well did, I thought no. he um I thought he turned down the Godfather and then regretted it and that's why he did yeah. this okay cool well oh no he he'd been working on this for years oh, okay I thought yeah mm-hmm. I thought he had turned down the Godfather and then it was like oh but I do want to do like a mobster movie so now this is my chance but I think it's because he had yeah. decided he wanted to do the hoods he thought that was yes. the movie to do thing that he wanted to do yeah and so i think if there's regret after you sense it in this of like trying to do the godfather trying to do right you know. mm. which it's weird that this is an 80s movie it does not seem like an 80s movie right like no. it seems like it should be from like the 60s mm-hmm. well the quick thing i want to add that i just i just thought of is uh in terms of the 80s is it has the um the dawn of the dead blood that i love like i mm. love the the paint bucket blood where you're just like that's not what blood looks like but there's a lot of it and it's all over the place and it's like gooey um whenever i see it it makes me happy again it's not good but it makes me happy i think they intentionally make the blood more vibrant when he's a kid than later on in the film whenever mm. it gets later on it's darker whenever um fat mo is being beaten up at the beginning because then you get kind of the darker red on him but whenever they're getting beat up in the streets and all that sort of stuff like it's just that really like vibrant neon red yeah you can just call him mo connor you don't need to you know know. he's fat mo (laughs) and he wears a yarmulke it's great he's the only he's the only one wearing a yarmulke of them yeah, Even it just reminded me Jewish. of that uh, that community line where I forget what it is, but it's just like, and there's fat oh. whatever, and it's like, just just this is fine. Like, just my name is fine. <laughs> but you're right, they call him Fat Mo. The seven-hour cut has skinny Mo and skinny normal mo. Si- regular size Mo, too. So they're trying yeah. to distinguish between those. Yeah, the, how do they distinguish yeah. between the timelines? It's the, 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 the character's weight name, nickname. <laughs> yeah. Okay, question number four. So what role did Joe Pesci originally audition for? A, Noodles, B, Cockeye, C, Max, or D, Patsy? Max. Cockeye. It's Max. So he originally auditioned for it, didn't get it. De Niro, whenever he came in, was like, hey, you should give Joe Pesci a role. And 
apparently his role was had a lot more to do in like the full version of the film which i also gotta say great use of the pesh in this film like oh man i love me some joe pesci and that is great also the guy who is with him at the beginning joe who's uh polly in the rocky movies is like the greasiest character in film i have ever seen like that man is amazing those sausage fingers the way that he talks he's just the way that he eats is amazing. I love that. So he was much. doing the uh, the Brad Pitt style acting of of eating, but like because he's not Brad Pitt, it looks really gross. It's so <laughs> gross. I know he's from Detroit, but I like having some Chicagoan representation in this movie because that's what it feels like. It's just he's eating, complaining about the sandwiches not being as good as back home. It's great. Okay, so here's your challenge. As we all know. Robert De Niro is in a lot of mobster films. Can you name 10 mobster films that he is in? Screw you, man. The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in America, Mm -hmm. Godfather Part 2. Those are the easy ones. Um, Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. Goodfellas. Casino. Yes. There's a couple more obvious ones. Does uh, Dirty Grandpa count? Uh, I don't think so. I'm okay, not technically okay. counting that one. <laughs> hmm. What was the actual way that you phrased it? Can you say it again? Mobster. So it has mobster. to be like a mobster film, not mafia, not specifically that. Just any sort of mobster. Mobster film. Cri- crime. Yeah, yeah. Not not just crime. Okay. Uh, there's an like early the... Scorsese on here. Oh, Mean Streets. Yep. Thank you. That was a good hint. Do you count Heat or no? Yeah, I'd count Heat. Okay. That's a good... Yeah, nice. Is Taxi Driver? Mm, no. Not really. Not really, no. Do we... <laughs> does Ronin <There's>, count? <laughs> um, I was going back and forth on it. I don't think I'll it maybe does, give but it to I was you like, if you can't think of all of them. But uh, there's a Brian De Palma film on here. Ooh. Like one of his most classic films. De Palma's a, a a weak spot for me in terms of knowledge. Yeah, me too. I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything else. He plays Al Capone in it. The Untouchables. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh shame. I got to remember shame, that one. Shame on us. I forget about The Untouchables all the time. If you hadn't have gotten that one, I would have been real disappointed. You need two more. You're almost there. And we've done so well on our own. We've done all of this by ourselves. Uh, good job, John and me. <laughs> <clears throat> oh man. De Niro with the crime films. Um, uh, Meet the Parents is a crime. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, film. roasted. Good one. It's kind of a joke, but I'll count it. There's an animated film on here. Oh. That also has Martin Scorsese in it. Scene. No. Um, what is it? What? What? I, I know what you're talking about. Dang it. What is it? This is embarrassing. I'll give you one more actor, and that's it. Jack okay. Black. What are you talking about? Kung Fu Panda. It's a movie that has nope. It has Martin <laughs> Scorsese, Jack Black, and Robert De Niro in it. And it's animated. None of those three are the top build in it either. And it's animated, three D animated. I know I'm going to be angry at the end of this. Whatever it, it doesn't matter what the answer is. I'm going to be pissed. So glad I don't have to edit this. Is there any obvious ones? So there's another. There's another big one that's a comedy with him and Charles Grodin. It's an 80s film directed by Martin Brest. Listener, I'm so sorry. 
Yeah, uh, how you doing, listener? Do you know? <laughs> Do you know the answer? Have you Googled it already? Have you skipped ahead? What's going Call on? Call in listener? and help us. Fake yeah. caller gets yeah. uh, phone yeah, a friend. I, yeah, yeah. Can I phone Google and solve uh, this? <laughs> Google is not our friends. Okay, I'll give you one more actor for the animated one. Okay, Will Smith. What? Wait, what? Will Smith is top billed in that. Uh, shark, shark. What is that film? Oh, shark, shark tail. Shark tail. Shark tail. Yep. Shark tail. <laughs> I am. They're angry. mobsters. He literally I'm plays. No, it's yeah, of course. That's an obvious one. Now you think about it. Yeah. Oh, I, I forgot that about my that brain. film. <laughs> Working at the car wash. Yeah. That's what I remember from that. That's like early DreamWorks learning the wrong message from Shrek, basically. <laughs> Correct. All right, can we have a hint for the last one that we're missing? Well, there's the comedy, the 80s comedy. Oh, the comedy, yeah. Uh, directed by Martin Brest. When are we going to talk about uh, Shark Tale? <laughs> if you want to pop on for Shark Tale, we'll just record that right after this. We're about to do Best of the 2000s, so. That's... <laughs> yeah, that'll be it. Um, Bronx story. Bronx. Close. Bronx, Bronx me daddy. A Bronx. Think of the the previous one that you answered. A Bronx tail? Yes. Okay. Bronx shark. There you go. <laughs> a, Bronx, a shark Bronx. Bronx t- so is it a Bronx Shre- tail or just Bronx tail? Shrek a bro- Bronx. A Bronx tail. Okay. Yeah. A shark then, Bronx Shrek tail. I don't know anything about it. I just know he's in a movie named after the borough. The 80s comedy was Midnight Run. Oh, I haven't seen that either. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is that it? Do gotcha. we get a, do we get ten? That's it. That's that was number ten. Yeah, we crushed it. <laughs> Good job, <laughs> listener. Awesome. If you could have seen Connor's face, it was like the meme of Ben Affleck with "Hello Darkness, My Old Friend." It was just disappointment, <laughs> and somehow the camera was zooming in closer on him. Like you could just tell he was like, "Wow, zoom, these, zoom these two new. jackals." Yeah, like, I'm sorry. To... <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on, Kyle. It was great having you on. Hopefully, the next film that we have you on uh, for, will you'll like more than this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, even again, even even a bad film. Again, there there's you know stuff to take away from it, and it's always I've wanted to to check it out for a long time. So honestly, just with how crazy stuff is these day in, this this day and age, I probably wouldn't have gotten to it for a long time. So I appreciate a little bit of a, a kick in the pants that I, that I needed and loved hearing you guys and, and your opinions and uh, getting to view it through a couple different lenses. And yeah, again, like didn't love it. Never will watch it again. Hopefully it will. Uh, I'll just keep the good and, and the bad will disappear and uh, probably won't recommend it to anyone, <laughs> but uh, I'm glad to have seen it. Well, good. Glad to hear that. (laughs) John, I think this wraps us up for our series now, which is a bummer. It was a lot of fun and we had a lot of great guests on, but we're excited to push forward. And before we start our next series that we are doing, where we are going to be covering the top five films of the 2000s, we've brought on a special guest for our episode on Ratatouille. This is kind of at the request of our guest, who is my younger sister, Zoe, who is a rat fanatic, and her rat Chicago is on there as well. And it was a lot of fun to do and a little bit out there. We always love talking about Pixar, but it was just fun viewing it through this lens. And we hope maybe it'll change your mind about rats. Who knows? It was a lot of fun. And then we'll continue with our other series afterwards. I think that about wraps us up for this episode. 
thanks again, Kyle, for coming on. Love to have you on again at another point. And as always, make sure to follow us. Oh, 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 before uh, I plug uh, our ooh, stuff. Uh, uh, uh. Kyle, do you want to plug anything? Do you have anything you want to promote? Ooh, uh, you have two great podcasts. Sure. <laughs> when 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 will this come out? By the way, do we know or is it a uh, January? Okay, well, beautiful. That works perfectly. Um, yeah, I do. I do two podcasts. One is called Humming Fools, which is a discussion and interview based show. So we talk about various art topics that relate to just being an artist. Uh, the most recent was the art of uh, existential crises, you know, just me being an angsty artist and asking that question of like, oh, man, I put all this work into something and maybe it's useless. How do I deal with that? So we, we kind of do those types of topics, but of course with, with humor and fun. And then we also interview artists that inspire us, both big and small. So uh, the interview that will be out by the time that this comes out is with a comedian and actress named uh, Maria Dakotis. And uh, man, it was so much fun. You know, she's just hilarious. And it's just continually surprising to me the amount of people that will talk to me for free whose dms i slide into and i just say hey you want to talk to a stranger and they go okay um so yeah please check that out um and then i also do a horror review show i am a unapologetic lover of horror films and i wish i could rope more people into accepting that it's not just horny teenagers getting killed by people in masks that it can be more than that so that's kind of the intention of the show and then, yeah, I mean, th- those are the two main things I do. You can also look at my website, ominous.media. Uh, we-, we post the podcast there. There's also comic work we do. And uh, thanks for having me, guys. And thanks for letting me uh, plug my stuff. I-, I hope of course, that I did okay. You know, I'm oh, sorry about not knowing the De Niro stuff. <laughs> I'm going to drink heavily tonight. And I'm going to be... Smoke some opium. Yeah, dude, you want to go to you guys want to you guys want to hit the local den after this? Uh. Oh yeah, get some. Uh, what was it? The the water heater whiskey. Yeah, yeah that was pretty sweet actually. It. Oh yeah, that was a good addition. Oh well, we should have you on for a horror film next. I don't know when we'll be. We don't know what our series is after the top five. So whenever we figure it out, we'll let you know. Yes, would love to come on and yeah, if you guys. Uh, if there's a horror film that you're particularly fond of and love, uh, you know, you guys will have to come on the night shift and, and, and tell us why it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Got lots of those. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps us up. As always, please be sure to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at Rules of the Frame. And that's also where you can contact us if you have any questions about any episodes, if you have any film recommendations. We might just pick them. So please feel free to send them to us as well. We'd also love a review on iTunes. It just helps to make our show more visible. Or if you want to share it with your family and friends, we also really appreciate that. Got to say thanks to John for the use of the graphic and Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and the outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. 